Pamela Fox, thank you for being on the show. You've been on, I think, all of the related podcasts. <laughs> You've been on Python Bytes and Testing Code, which I'm changing the name to, to Python oh, yeah? Test. Oh, that's what I thought. <laughs> I saw your your toot about Python Test and the stickers. I thought that PyTest was rebranding, and I thought like maybe PyTest was getting picked up by Python and like putting in the standard library. Oh, no. I, I made up a whole story for in my head about what Python Test was. No, it, yeah. So this this episode is supposed to be about you, but I'm gonna yeah. go off anyway. The um <laughs> the podcast started as the the Python testing podcast, and it was a mouthful, so I shortened it yeah. to testing code. But then that's dumb because it's an ampersand, and no, you can't <laughs> do that. So it's and in there, and then none of those words are searchable very well. So right. Um. Also, I just. I don't know why. I don't think I had, I don't think I had the pythontest.com website owned then um, when I did the switch or I would have picked that. I mean, probably, but so I'm just putting it back. So it's not really that interesting of a story. (laughs) I think that all the podcasts should have more alliteration. Like if I, if I actually started a podcast it would, you know, clearly start with Pamela and Pamela's podcast, but then it could be like Pamela's Python podcast or oh, yeah. Pamela's Python playground. I was thinking like Pee Wee's playground. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, but that's like personal protective. Isn't three Ps? Isn't that something to do with like like masks for COVID or something? Uh, I think that's PPE, personal protective equipment. E PPE. Okay, got it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, Pamela's. Pamela's perfect Python podcast. There you go. Yeah. Um, And you could do it like always. So it's Pamela's perpetual perfect. (laughs) (laughs) Well, except when I give up on Python and, you know, go back to JavaScript or, or switch to go or something. I I forgot your, you were JavaScript for a while or still are. (laughs) Um, You know, I, yeah, I, I was very much into JavaScript because I didn't even go to Python conferences. I think I went to one PyCon AU like way back, maybe 2010 or something. I think that was the only Python conference I went to. Uh, but I meant I went to many, many JavaScript conferences. So I've always uh, been a bit more in the JavaScript front end community. And that's probably because of doing teaching and for, you know, te- JavaScript was always a more teachable language than Python just because of being able to do it in the browser. Mm. Uh, but, you know, lately I got into teaching Python and now we can teach Python in the browser because we have PyDide. So so uh, now I can do more Python. That's cool. Yeah, I think we I think we talked about PyDide and your work with that a little bit on last time we talked. Um, mm-hmm. But so I'll, I'll link to that show if I can find it <laughs> um, in the notes, but the um, you've been doing a lot of, you're, you're still doing a lot of teaching and everything, right? Um, well, so now, uh, yeah, I mean, I've got a full-time job now <laughs> uh, where I'm, you know, I'm at Microsoft and I'm a cloud advocate on the Python team. And that keeps me really busy, especially because I have a one-year-old and a four-year-old. So uh, I do still do some teaching on the side from that. I mean, I consider advocacy to be a form of teaching. That's like how I approach advocacy is like, how can I share this knowledge? Uh, But I do also do some more teaching, teaching on the side um, 
for uh, right now, mostly for Girl Develop It, which is an organization that teaches to women and non-binary folks. Okay, that's very cool. Um, what can you tell? That's like the elevator pitch, I guess. Uh, <laughs> is there more to it than that? Well, we yeah. So we um, GDI has been around for a long time. It was. Uh, I got involved actually back in Australia. This is like in 2010 when I was at Google Sydney and I started a Sydney chapter then. And that was back when we were doing like in-person workshops. And then I you know, moved back to San Francisco and we had lots of in-person workshops all over San Francisco. So I've seen like the inside of every office because we would have our venues everywhere, like, you know, everything hosted us. So I've been inside, you know, Twitter, Microsoft, uh, Hack Reactor, Galvanize, Relic, New Rel- whatever. Yeah, New Relic. So uh, we would have workshops just all over the city, uh, you know, whoever would have us. Uh, so it would just be a bunch of us, you know, Saturday. Like I went hard. So like our JavaScript workshops would be like Saturday from 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. and Sunday 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. And oh, wow. we covered a, like a lot in that time, right? Uh, and they were really fun because I, I, yeah, I, I got a kick out of it. Um, so that was really fun. Uh, then, of course, you know, the pandemic happened. And so now there's not as much on. I don't even know if any of the chapters do anything in the local, you know, actual physical in-person workshops. Uh, most of the or all of the workshops are online. Okay. So, you know, we'll get on Zoom. Uh, but the cool thing is that means that, you know, I can have students from uh, outside the Bay Area as well. I think a safe place where you just take the dudes out of it, or at least that's mostly the idea is that is that an idea or am I, am I reading too much into it uh yeah i mean there's a lot of ideas behind it it's uh part of it is just trying to make sure that uh people feel invited uh right that it's like this is like knowing this is something that is for you uh because a lot of you might look at some other workshop and think like oh i'm gonna show up and feel out of place people don't like feeling out of place right, right. Like, especially if you already feel like you might be out of place especially if you're new to something you um, you know, and, and you're, you're still learning things. Uh, it's just really easy to start having thoughts that you don't belong somewhere. Right. So how can we increase the likelihood that somebody feels like they belong somewhere? Um, so one way is by saying like, Hey, these are workshops that are specifically for women and non-binary folks. And, uh, you know, and that's, that helps, right. It, it, um, okay. lowers the, the barrier for feeling like you belong. My youngest is in high school now. She's going to take a Python class in school, but I think that some virtual training or something. Yeah, there's also, I don't know what Girls Who Code is doing these days. Uh, So Girls Who Code, I've also taught for them. They specifically target, uh, you know, K-12 students. And it's funny because the naming is just horrible of everything. Like Girl Develop is actually for adult women. It's because it's supposed to be like, girl, develop it. I don't know. Oh, Uh, okay. And then Django Girls, I think, is also kind of for usually uh, at adults. Maybe it's got a mix of ages. I actually haven't been involved in Django Girls. But Girls Who Code is very specifically like high school, high school, middle school level. I don't know if they're in middle school yet. But uh, when I taught it, it was at a high school in San Francisco. And it was uh, like an after school program. And so what they do is during the year they have after school programs and then during the summer they have these on-campus programs so they get to like go to pixar and microsoft and google and i actually stopped by the pixar one which is so cool because i like any excuse to stop by pixar because i'm of course a huge pixar fan girl because who's not um so you know you get to walk in and take your picture with you know buzz lightyear uh That's so, so cool. uh, you've you been there. to pixar yeah. 
Uh, yeah, I mean, it's like down the street. Technically, it's you know, it's Emeryville. It's not far from me here. Uh, and I, I did actually work with Pixar uh, at Khan Academy because we have this uh, Khan Academy Pixar curriculum kind of thing, and it it does mix in a little bit of programming, so you can program the rigging of uh, like a drawing of a snowman and stuff. Hmm. So I did actually go in order to have a meeting with them, which is which was really cool, and because they got a tour. But I, I'm happy for any excuse to to go there. So I did also go there to see the girls who code. Um, so that's really cool. So they do a summer program and during the summer, they'd learn all sorts of things, including Python last I checked. And then if they enjoy that, the students can go back to their high school and start up a chapter of girls who code at their chap at their, at their high school, as long as they get like support of a teacher. So that can be a really cool model. Cause it's like, you, like they get all this, you know, knowledge and enthusiasm and energy from this summer experience. And then they can try and bring it back to their high school and share it with others. Uh, Cause I know it can, if you're like the only one that's into it, you know, interested in something, it can be hard to keep up the hobby. That's pretty cool that you're, uh, I guess, giving back. Uh, you teach as an advocate though, right? Also, or do you not? I don't know what an advocate does. <laughs> it depends what you think of an advocate is doing. So I like to think of what I'm doing as teaching, but other people will think of it as selling. Uh, and I think there's like, I mean, yeah, there's different lenses. So uh, I tend to veer more towards the thinking, trying to <laughs> at least thinking of myself as a teacher. So it's like, here's some technology. It's out there. Let me teach you how to use it. Right. Um and so, you know, so going on streams and conferences and writing blog posts and all of that, it's it's a, at least a form of knowledge sharing. Is there a difference? Well, I think like it's so one thing that's different, actually, it, like it, removing like that, you know, advocacy and paid position part of it is the difference between teaching a language and teaching a tool that I've seen a huge difference in because I've done that. I, I've taught Python the language. Uh, I taught it at UC Berkeley for a few years before starting this position. And I've also started taught, uh, taught it online for um, a course on this uh Uplimit website. And so there I'm teaching the language, which is like, you know, te and teaching programming, the idea of programming. And that is, that is really, it's really different from teaching a tool. Um, so when you're teaching the language and teaching the ideas of programming, like there's just it's it's hard actually teaching is really hard <laughs> part of why I'm, I'm you know i i don't do it all the time is because it's actually hard like it's i i am like not able to there's some concepts i'm not i don't teach well because they're hard to teach and i haven't you know figured out how do i teach this concept like every time i teach object-oriented programming like i change up the order in which i you know teach things because i'm like oh should i show the class first should i show the init first do i talk about self when do i talk about self how do i talk about self should i show bound method like it's really hard to teach oop um in a like logical sequential order and i haven't figured out the right you know exact right sequence there <laughs> so that uh I, so i you know i and i so i do teach python sometimes and i haven't i have a python intro curriculum that i use um, uh, but I do think it's actually pretty hard. I would contrast that to teaching a tool. Like a tool is like, you know, seeing like, oh, this is how you use a function. In there, here, I'm just like, I'm teaching the people who already know what a function is. They they understand the idea of parameters and return values. Somebody already knows what a function is, then you're just showing them, oh, here's a function and this is what it takes, this is what it outputs, right? You're yeah. just showing them it exists. It's way different than the fundamental idea of what is this abstraction that's a function? Why do I even have functions? What is a return value? What is a side effect? Uh, so I would say with, with my job, I tend to be teaching more tools. Um, whereas in, when I'm teaching like a Python intro course, it's, it's uh, a lot more, um, fundamental concepts. 
Okay. But even with tools, so my, I guess I'm hoping that it's not just like, here's how to use absolutely every feature of this tool. But, um, I like, I like tutorials that are, you're trying to get this done. Here's how to do it with this tool. Um, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. uh, because you don't need like, I, a friend of mine had an interview and they had, uh, one of the requirements was, uh, knowing the Microsoft office suite well. And I'm like, nobody knows it well, except for the people, <laughs> even the people that work on it probably don't know it well. There's like a billion mm-hmm. functions in there. Um, but uh, knowing how to use it to, to get things done, a lot of people know how to do that. Um, anyway, not, not to bash yeah. Microsoft, but. <laughs> um, no, I don't, I don't even know how to use it because. Well, I, cause I'm on a Mac and I don't know, I don't use a lot of the software right now. Well, I mean, very, like my very first program was in Microsoft Word. If we're going to go way back, my very first like quote unquote program was Microsoft Word with this plugin called, I think it was called Internet Explorer Assistant um, because I think it's when Internet Explorer was around and you could you could export your Microsoft Word document as a web page. And that is how I made my first web page. So I, you know, forever indebted to Microsoft Word for letting me export my first web page. Okay. This is terrible, though. I mean, I had to deal with a whole bunch of web pages that were exported from Microsoft Word as a, <laughs> in an internal web page, like a company thing. And like, hey, just put this up. I'm like, no, this is bad. Um, anyway uh well cool yeah you probably had to like actually look at the html and then oh yeah it's probably really horrible yeah Yeah. well i'm kind of one of those customizer people too so i'm i'm like well if we're if we have to grab data so this is a this is a total side project but side thing but um there were we got into web scraping really early like people were like oh we could publish stuff so now we need web scrapers to get the data off so we have like one company that's one group is publishing, taking data that's in very readable format, like machine readable, publishing it as a horrible website, and then somebody else trying to scrape it to get the original data out. <laughs> you could just share the data between the two teams, right? Um, Why? <laughs> anyway, uh, but now we have uh, like REST endpoints and we can do that a little bit easier. Mm-hmm, uh, so. Mm-hmm. But um, so what, what kind of tools are you mostly advocating for at microsoft or is it everything that microsoft sells uh well being on the python team it's you know the intersection between python and microsoft and actually we're specifically on the cloud advocacy team so it's it's you know python and azure um so a lot of it is figuring out how to you know get python apps working well on azure especially as your kind of hosting platforms so recently i've been working with my colleague jay miller on uh, using cookie cutter so that's the python package cookie cutter uh, which can generate it can generate repos based off templates so we use the cookie cutter in order to generate at this point we're at like 17 repos i think okay. 17 different repos that show like how do you deploy django fast api flask on Azure app service, Azure container apps with like four different types of uh, 
SQL or Mongo servers, uh, database servers. Oh, wow. So that that is a really cool. I'm really excited about that use of cookie cutter um, because basically, you know, there's a lot of stuff that's in common across uh, across all those things, right? Uh, you know, a lot of shared code, but there's also things different, right? Obviously, a fast API app is different from a Flask app, and uh, you know, a Postgres model is different from a Mongo model. So we just kind of like swap in you know, swap in things, but I'm now like an expert on what is the exact difference between, uh, you know, Flask and Fast API because we've ported the, the you know, the, the same app and we even have like functions that translate between two because we actually managed to reuse the same templates for the most part. So we're using like the same Jinja 2 templates um, because they're, you know, they basically can all use that. And uh, we just swap out some, you know, we have like some Jinja filters that can that can like swap out the database queries if we if we really need to. Okay, interesting, cool. Are you, are you having fun being an advocate still? Um, I mean, I think <laughs> last time we talked, you just sort of started. So yeah, uh, yeah. Now it's been like more than a year. Yeah, it's still really fun because there's still my gosh, just so there's just so much to learn, and um, yeah, I just really I really like learning. I get pretty excited by it, and like you know, like staying up all night trying to figure something out. So. Uh, right now, I'm also working. So I kind of split my time between that project and also working on our ChatGPT on your data sample. So that's like combining ChatGPT with Cognitive Search in order to answer questions based off of data, like in order to you know, keep ChatGPT constrained to those those search results. Which I think is a nice use of uh, of of LLMs uh, because you know we've seen that LLMs can make stuff up when they're just doing something without any constraints, but here we're actually giving it constraints. So that's really interesting. And what right. I was working on just now was uh, how to evaluate the, you know, whether um, a particular uh, prompt flow is is working to answer the questions nicely. And it's funny because you use ChatGPT to evaluate ChatGPT. <laughs> so we like we send off like all these like ground truth answers off and then uh, tell ChatGPT like please evaluate this in terms of uh, fluency and give it a five, 1 to 5 and then you get back a bunch of scores. So it's it's a it's a really interesting field. There's also some other metrics as well um, that uh, use uh, you know other ways of comparing uh, you know the new answers to the ground truth answers, but the primary metrics are using ChatGPT4 in order to evaluate the other LLM. Huh, nice. Sounds neat. Um, yeah, it's pretty interesting. You said you like to stay up at night, but you got small kids. How do you do that? <laughs> uh well, I yeah, sorry. I really should sleep more. Uh, I'm I'm I've never been super good at sleeping, so I I try to get to bed. Um, I still co sleep with my baby, so I go like into the bed at eight thirty. And uh, she likes to sleep in my arms. So we have to start off in my arms. So while she's in my arms, I'm either reading a book on the Kindle or I'm like, you know, doing some code on the laptop. And then, you know, when she's settled in, then I, I try to go to bed. So I try to be in bed by 10 o'clock. And then usually I'm up again at five because she wants to be back in the arms. Yeah. And so I actually end up doing a lot of coding between 5 a.m. and 7 a.m just with one hand because <laughs> she wants to be in the, she wants to be in the arms and yeah. I'm awake now. So it's time to do something. <laughs> okay. Uh, nice. Um, that's, that's cool. And you're, uh, able, you're, I assume remote work. You're not in the office or anything. 
Yeah, yeah, I've never been in the, I've been in the Microsoft San Francisco office, uh, but I've never been, I don't think in any other office. Uh, so yeah, it's all remote work and it's all been, I mean, I was remote even, my very first job out of college was also developer relations and that was for Google and I was working on the Maps API, JavaScript and Flash, if we're gonna go way back. <laughs> um, and uh, and that was that was all remote as well. So I'm I'm very used to the, the idea of being a remote worker. Um, because we've been doing it for so long and especially for advocacy, because I think with advocates, it's like, so you're traveling so much of the time anyway, or at least in the past, we would be traveling so much yeah. of the time anyway. Like, you know, uh, you know, why not just uh, assume that you're going to be remote a lot of the time. Now has travel picked up? Uh, conferences have started doing in-person things again. Do you know if we're going to see more advocates at conferences or? Yeah, it's a good question. We last we checked, we were told we don't have much of a travel budget, especially for like, you know, going up and going to London, you know, like you really, I mean, you spend a lot of money. I have to admit for me, I'm happy that we don't have a travel budget because I feel like I used up my carbon, uh, you know, uh, yeah. carbon offsets or whatever. I used them up when I was at Google because I did so many flights all over the place. Right. Um, so now, you know, I'm older. I've already traveled a bunch. I've got, you know, the two young kids. So I'm actually pretty happy to do everything, everything virtually uh, that we can. So I, I'm I'm somewhat dreading getting a budget. I'm like, no, I want to stay at home. Um, but I do. Yeah, I think it's going to pick up. Um, uh, but we'll see. It's, it's uh, we're 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 still pretty constrained because there's also so many virtual events, and it's it's kind of hard to decide like where where do you get the most benefit? Like, do you you know how much benefit do you get from going you know traveling too far to some in person event um, versus the benefit you could get from you know doing virtual events? Right, and I guess it's different though. I mean, like. Uh, I'm at like PyCon, for instance, I'm hanging out at the, the booths all, all like half the time talking to people and, <laughs> and teams and everything. But, uh, if I'm doing a virtual, like go to a virtual event, I'm, I'm not, I know there's like, like so a lot of the companies have little hangout places where you can talk to them. I'm not doing that really. I don't, yeah. Um, right. Yeah. Especially for an exhibitor. That's true. Yeah. I, I think that people aren't like chatting up. They're not really chatting up virtual exhibitors so much because um, yeah. I even like I volunteered I was like uh you know I can be a virtual exhibitor and they're like eh, it's not a thing <laughs> <laughs> like okay yeah <laughs> yeah not a thing because I I feel bad that yeah because there's been conferences I've been asked to go to um but as you know when last year having a very very small baby uh, I just couldn't go. Yeah. So I would volunteer to be a, you know, help out however I could virtually, but yeah, when it, it's, it's, uh, it doesn't work as well. Unless like a, a conference has really set out to make it work. So I forget, are you, are you in the Bay area then? Uh, I am in the Bay area. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I'm yeah, near Pixar. <laughs> All right. <laughs> near, Ber near Berkeley. Yep. Cause yep. I was teaching at UC Berkeley. Okay. The only, the only reason why I know where Emeryville is, is because there's a, uh, Amtrak station there. 
Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I've taken it. And I uh, had to chase it all over the place um, to try to get my mom back on the train because uh, we missed it. But anyway. Yeah, I know. I have taken that train because if I need to go down to Mountain View, but it's like, I don't think people realize the Bay Area is huge. I didn't realize it. When I first moved to the Bay Area, I was working for Google Mountain View and I was like, oh, I'll live in Berkeley. I know Berkeley is part of the Bay Area and Mountain View is part of the Bay Area. So therefore I'll live in Berkeley. Oh, but then I realized like Berkeley is like really, <laughs> I didn't know that. I didn't, <laughs> I was working for Google Maps, but neglected to look at a map. Uh, so I was like taking like, you know, like it was like two hours to get there. And then if I missed my shuttle, I'd have to take like a hundred dollar taxi ride down there. I did have to do that multiple times. Cause that was back when I actually did have some in-person meetings. Uh, so, uh, yeah. Yeah. So Yikes. look at a map, uh, Bay area is actually really big and depending on where you're trying to go, it can take a really long time to get there. Yeah, we had, um, so I was in, when I started my career at HP, I was in Santa Rosa, um, HP had, uh, at the time, they had a camp, they owned a campground near, I don't know, one of the Santas. Uh, so we're like, all we have to do is like register for it and go and we get a free campground. That's cool. Let's go camping. It was like four hours to get there or something. Cause we, we were like, we'll leave Friday afternoon. No, don't, don't leave Friday afternoon from Santa Rosa to try to get to the South Bay. Uh, that's a, it's bad. Um, but, Anyway, live and learn. Yeah. Yeah. My partner was actually called into a meeting in Santa Clara and I just said, no, you're not <laughs> <going>. <laughs> yeah, that's just, it's just too far. Yeah. He actually did had to go to San Francisco today to the office and even that wreaked havoc. So we're, cause we're just so used to the, you know, remote from home lifestyle that it really wreaks havoc anytime we, you know, try to attempt any sort of commute. Yeah. When, and I don't know if it's still there. One of my favorite, shops was in uh berkeley i think uh, castle in the air um anyway a couple of the artists that i love are in that area so i'll, I'll have to plan a visit here sometime soon um but uh, this isn't the specifically the testing podcast that's the other one but <laughs> i you wrote down ally testing or a i think that accessibility I, accessibility okay yes um i should have known that i could have looked it up <laughs> but it's was it a, is it a L L Y or a, yeah, it's often, I mean, I don't know why I use it. Cause I hate it too, but it's often abbreviated as a 11 Y 11 Y. Okay. Yeah. I'm not sure the origins of it, but it's, it's always how it's always been abbreviated that way for so long. And I, I always find it so hard. Cause I, I try to pronounce everything I see. So I look at that. I'm like, what? But then when you accessibility is also a really long word. So I think that's okay. you know, why it came about, but yeah, so accessibility testing. Okay. So what, what, why do you care about that? And I mean, I know why we should care about it, but why do you care about it? Uh, well, I just, I think that, you know, what I've observed is that what, you know, what people measure is what ends up mattering. And right now people are, you know, they're you know, getting into like pie tests and stuff like that. They're like measuring, you know, measuring their, their unit tests and or their end to end tests. Uh, but a lot of people are not measuring accessibility. Um, and if they're doing anything with accessibility, it's, you know, maybe they're having a QA test, maybe they're getting an audit, which would be great. Uh, but they're just not measuring it. So I'm, I think we need to make it easier for people to measure what matters and accessibility, you know, matters. Uh, so I've been working on various tools and I gave a talk at North Bay Python about uh, some of the tools I wrote, some PyTest packages to make it easier to do automated accessibility 
testing uh, using the Axe Core library and PyTest and Playwright. Really? Okay. What's Axe Core? So Axe Core is actually a JavaScript library, which is why it's very interesting to use it from, from Python. Uh, but it's a JavaScript library, which makes sense because Axe Core, what it'll do is you actually inject it into a page and it looks at the rendered page, which is really important for accessibility because accessibility yeah. is like, can you can you use it, right? And if an element is in, is in front of another element or if something has like low contrast and uh, like, you know, against its background. Right. So this this library specifically is dealing with the rendered page, not with the static HTML. Because you can do some sort of static HTML analysis to like find like, oh, I'm missing your alt text. Of course, everyone's missing their alt text. But there's a lot more to accessibility than just missing alt text. There's you know stuff about uh, you know the tab order of headings and whether things can actually be clicked to, and if something's being hidden, and if the contract is, contrast is too low, and all that stuff, right? Yeah. So Axe will evaluate all of those things on the rendered page and then it gives you back these results and uh you know and then you can do whatever you want with results and so axcore is what's used by pretty much everything um like browser extensions that measure accessibility they're all i think almost all of them are using axcore um you know lots of javascript libraries use it and so what i did was just uh you know wrote up uh some python packages that uh, you know hopefully make it a little bit easier to uh, to use Xcore. And so they basically, you know, um, in conjunction with Playwright, which is an end-to-end -end testing library, you know, you get your Playwright page and it'll just inject the Xcore JavaScript into the page, get the results and give them back to you as a Python dictionary. Cool. Is it, is it hard to, I mean, does, if I, if I don't know where to start, is it, how, is there a way to just get started? If I've got, I've got a website, I'd like to know if it's, if it's, meeting accessibility standards um can i just point x core at it and it'll tell me whether it's good or bad or not or is there is there more to it than that yeah uh, yeah yeah good question so if you're just getting started you might want to actually start with the you know the browser extensions okay. uh, i think they they're, they're going to be a little bit easier more user friendly for you to understand so i really like um the accessibility insights extension uh it's actually from microsoft but it does a really nice job of like, it, it'll actually like, you can run it on your page and it'll highlight the things that are wrong. So you can just see very visually. And the thing that's really cool about it that I absolutely love is that if your contrast is too low, which is almost always the case, everybody has contrast issues on their site. If the contrast is too low, it'll automatically suggest, it'll actually like do the math and say, you know, your background color is currently this light green. Here's how you can make it a slightly darker green. And then you would meet the accessibility contrast ratio needs. Okay. So that's that's what's really, really cool about it. Uh, so I would start with the browser extensions, actually. And uh, just to give that, you know, to get your ha hands around it. Um, and then, you know, once you've got, uh, you know, basic stuff fixed, then you could think about automation, right? I think automation makes sense if you've got, you know, um, a, you know, a website that could become less accessible over time, then uh, you could go ahead and um, bring it in. Now, I showed two different ways of doing this in, in my talk and I also have blog posts about it. Because um, one way is just checking, asserting that you have no violations, right? That's the gold, the golden ideal. Like there are no violations on my site, amazing. If you can do that, that is fantastic. And you can just have no violations forever, right? Now, most websites, do have accessibility violations. Uh, and sometimes they can't fix them because sometimes they're coming from third-party libraries. Yeah. Like even my um, 
pretty basic website where I write all my slides in HTML using the real JS framework. There's a plugin I use that uh, has some accessibility issues, um, but I, I do want to keep using that plugin because it does increase the usability otherwise. So, um, so you know, what am I going to do in that case? Uh, well, that's why I wrote another a PyTest plugin to do snapshot testing. So this one combines the Axe Core with a PyTest snapshot uh, library so that you can save in snapshots that say, here are the current violations with my pages. And so that way, you know, when you, when you update the website, you can make sure that you don't have uh, more violations, right? So ideally your violations go away or they stay the same. Okay. That's actually awesome. Uh, so you have a blog post about this somewhere in a talk and mm -hmm, mm -hmm, okay, mm -hmm. well, I'll get those links from you later and we throw them on the yeah. thing because, um, well, I'm, I'm concerned about this a lot because, well, even before chat GPT and stuff, we had, we're trying, I mean, it's a noble goal. We're trying to get it building for the web easier for people, but mm -hmm. building something good that's accessible to everybody is harder. So having yeah. tools around to help people that little easier because there's a lot of people that are doing stuff it's not a big team it's not there's a lot of websites not built by big companies even even some fairly well used stuff is just built by a handful of people so mm -hmm. um uh yeah so making it a little bit easier to do that it'd be great the tab thing i was chuckling when you said that because that drives me nuts i'm a i'm i'm a kind of person that uses the tab when filling out forms and it drives me nuts when the tab order just hops all the way all around um, yeah, or tabs onto uh, an element that there's nothing to enter there. So why 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 am I tabbing to it? It's just highlighting a word somewhere or something. Um. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So that's a great thing. Like the accessibility. Like you know, we it's often reported as you know being for folks with disabilities. But uh, accessibility generally, when you make your website more accessible, you're generally making it more usable for everyone. Um, and then also the thing to keep in mind is that. A, many of us have like kind of temporary disabilities or situational disabilities, even yeah. if we don't think that we have a permanent disability. So for me, like I was saying, I do a lot of my coding from 5 a.m. to 7 a.m. If your contrast is low on your website, I literally can't read it. Um, right? There was like a website I was trying to use this morning. I just could not read it because, you know, my my screen and everything is so dim at that point of um, the night. So, it was, you know, it's just unreadable. So, you know what I mean? Like if you make something more accessible, it's, it's generally just going to make things better for everyone in, in more situations. Yeah. And it, we're starting to kind of go away from, there's still some web or like mobile only pages. Um, mm. uh, but we're kind of going away from that. I think that we're doing more, um, uh, what do you call responsive? Web responsive. Mm -hmm. Um, better, mm -hmm. but there's some stuff like my bank still has drives me nuts. It, it's got a, like a mobile only version, which is fine. It's more readable, but they take information away. Like if I'm, if I'm looking at oh, like yeah. my, uh, the list of transactions, like kind of the, like the online register thing, it's the amount. And then also what the balance is after that, transaction on the mobile one they take away the balance part i'm like why did you take that information that's right useful right. stuff um but. Yeah, I guess they couldn't figure out how to squish it in. But that's a good point. So that's something you could do with the when you're running the test is that you could like parameterize your test and you could run them across different uh like different screen dimensions. So you could run them in uh you know to try and prompt your responsive mode. Because if you're if your website has a very different 
layout uh, at a small screen resolution. And many websites do because of media queries of CSS because of responsive yeah. web design. But the, in the PyTest side, you could actually parameterize that. And I know you love PyTest parameterization. So, <laughs> you know, you could go and say like, I want to try it at all these resolutions and make sure there's, you know, that there's no violations that, you know, pop up at the smaller re screen resolution. Well, I think last time we talked, you were not a PyTest plugin author. So that's cool. <laughs> Um, how was that experience? Oh, that was great. Well, thank you. You, you helped me figure out how to get started. Cause it's always about getting started, right? It's like, what repo should I start off with? Right. And cause I found this like cookie cutter pie test thing. Uh, and then I talked to you about it, but you pointed me at your, uh, crayons repo. So I ended up starting with your crayons repo and that was really helpful. It just was a bit more uh, up to date in terms of, I think the packaging. Uh, so, so yeah, that was really helpful. And uh, so now, now I'm a PyTest author. Now, now we're like thinking of like what so many other PyTest plugins, because what I've realized is that part of the point of a PyTest plugin is just making it easy for people to see how to do something, even if they don't directly use the plugin. Yeah. Right. Cause there's lots of plugins. Like there's this PyTest Flask plugin and it like has this live server in it. And we weren't able to quite use PyTest Flask, um, but we like looked at how it was implemented to figure out how how we wanted to like set up a live server for something we were testing. So it's just like it increases the discoverability of PyTest solutions, uh, even if you don't end up using the plugin itself. So that's an uh, interesting observation. Because I've also noticed, I mean, the thing you'll see is that lots of PyTest plugins have not been updated in a long time, right? This is, or lots of Python packages have not been updated in a long time. Um, but I think part of what we need to think about is that, uh, you know, some of these things, you know, they got packaged up and they may not be ever updated again, but now you at least have a nice starting off point to see how you can, you know, integrate something into your own tests, whether you use the package or whether you are inspired by the code. Yeah. That's one of the things I think we need to, as a community, PyTest community, we need to do a little bit better on. There's some plugins I use that haven't been updated in like three years. They work fine, um, mm -hmm. but just being able to go in and uh, just update the test so that it's tested on the most recent Python so that people know it's been updated and like, mm -hmm. oh, it hasn't been tested since 3.7, so uh, maybe it won't work. Well, you can try it. It probably works. Um, and a lot of, uh, and so a lot of PyTest plugins are, they're just little things. They're just like a fixture or, you know, a little extra yeah. thing. So it's not going to break unless PyTest completely changes how they do stuff. Um, I'm like one of the people that writes stuff that breaks all the time. Uh, because okay. I, <laughs> well, the my I wrote PyTest check, which is a a way to have multiple failures per test. Um, mm -hmm. whereas normally an assert stops right away, uh, your test can't continue. But I'd like to have, and I'm doing things because I'm like testing waveforms and things like that. So I want to test both the like the the help how loud it is and uh, what the frequency is. And I want to test a whole bunch of stuff and I want to see all of the failures for something because anyway, uh, but uh, yeah. there's examples for like web page. anyway, but in order to make that work, I have to like kind of dig into the internals of PyTest, and mm. those are not guaranteed mm -hmm. to not change uh, over releases. So uh, luckily I've had some PyTest core help to keep them updated, but there's another one like uh PyTest repeat. Um, that hasn't been, and it just calls, it just uh, parameterizes your test kind of under the hood so that you run a test multiple times. And mm -hmm. it works awesome, 
Uh, and it hasn't been updated for like three years, but it still works great. The thing that I, uh, but then I, I wanted it by default It just like, if you have 10 tests and you say, I want to repeat it a hundred times, it'll take test one and run it a hundred times. And then go to test two and run it a hundred times. And I'm like, no, I don't want that. I want it to do the all 100, oh, yeah. uh, like uh, multiple times. But, um, but there's a parameter for that, that I just didn't know. I just didn't read the readme close enough. Um, <laughs> So anyway, uh, I, I used to be recommending, uh, now I'm off on a tangent, but I used to be recommending PyTest Flake Finder because by default Flake Finder does the whole thing, but you know, they're both good. Um, but, uh, I'm cl- the packaging story is a little weird. It keeps changing. So keeping up on packaging mm-hmm. is a little tough. Are you using flit then? Or are you, uh, Keep still using Flit, or are you doing hat? I or? think I'm using Flit, especially if you were using Flit. Uh, I definitely know we're using Flit because I mo- uh, I also very recently contributed to Flask SQL Alchemy, okay. uh, and Flask SQL SQL Alchemy does use use Flit. Um, so yeah, so by default, I don't even like I don't even get into the weeds on. Uh, you know, all this packaging stuff. I know there's, you know, the, that y'all show a lot of them on your various podcasts. Uh, I just want something to work <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> because I, I'm like packaging to me is something I don't really want to deal with. I just want it to work. Flit seems to just work. So I am happy to, to use that. Well, cool. Yeah. So how did you get into using did you, were you just a user of Flask SQL Alchemy and you wanted to help out or? Yeah, yeah, good question. So I, I think it started when, uh, so my colleague, Anthony Shaw, he had the idea for doing a video about how to use SQL Alchemy 2.0 cause SQL Alchemy 2.0 came out in January of this year. And it's actually a pretty big change, um, in that you can now define your models with uh, with Python type annotations, and uh, you know everything will will just work. So if you want to use Python type annotations, you should use SQL Alchemy 2.0. And Anthony's like, oh, we should do some sort of video, you know, using that uh, in in VS Code and Copilot and all that stuff, like for you know for our work. So I started digging into it and I was like, oh, this is great. This is so cool. And then we could like port all our samples over. But then I realized all our samples are using Flask SQL Alchemy. Uh, which is a you know a package an extension for Flask that makes it easy to use SQL Alchemy models, but it is not compatible with SQL Alchemy 2.0 because so much is you know is changed. Um, so uh, or at least not compatible with the new style of models. So SQL Alchemy 2.0 does still support the older style, but it's considered legacy. If you want to use the new typed models, you do need to make changes. Uh, and you know, I told Anthony, I was like, Oh no, sorry, it's impossible. And Anthony's like, well, maybe you should fix it. I'm like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> so I've no kudos to Anthony. He, he believes in me. Uh, cause I was looking at the flash SQL alchemy code going like, Oh gosh, like the SQL alchemy code. I find really, I don't know if you've ever like casually browsed the SQL alchemy code no. or even the documentation. Like it's, it's so complicated cause it's supporting a lot and ORMs, you know, ORMs are complicated. Databases are complicated. So there's a lot. There's just a lot going on in that code. Yeah. Uh, the Flask SQL Alchemy code is more approachable. Well, especially now that I've been in it. Uh, so yeah, I just, I, I was like, okay, like, all right, well, I'll just spend some time digging into it. So, um, you know, spend a couple of days, like trying to wrap my head around it. So I made diagrams, like when I'm trying to understand something, I have to make diagrams. So I made these like 
big diagrams in draw.io that showed like, you know, the, the different um, SQL alchemy classes and how they and interacted. Cause that's like the way I understand something is by drawing it. If basically, if I can draw it, then I can understand it. And if I can't draw it, it means I'm still learning it. Uh, so yeah, so eventually figured out like, okay, I think I have an approach that would be, you know, fairly compatible with everything. And then, you know, proposing in a pull request, uh, met David at North Bay Python. So we did like an in-person code review, which was really nice and went through all that. Uh, David Lord's the Flask maintainer, uh, primary Flask maintainer. And, uh, we got it in a couple weeks ago. So I've been porting lots of things over since, and it's really fun because you get to use types now. So now you're, you've helped out with SQL Alchemy. Yeah, or with like Flask. It's more about the Flask. And now I'm in like the Flask Discord. I'm not usually in a lot of Discords, but uh, I'm adding to the list. Uh, so yeah, generally like what you see is like lots of Flask extensions could use some help contributing. And you know, Oktoberfest is coming up. Um, so this could be a good time for folks to get involved. The hard thing is that a lot of times the Flask extension like maintainers don't even have time to like review pull requests, right? Because a lot of these things have been made in, you know, people's, free time. That's why it's nice to have an employer that supports uh, doing some open source contribution as well. Um, but uh, yeah, the hard thing is that you both need you know people to make the pull requests, but you also need people to review the pull requests and be comfortable with them and do the release, right? Yeah. Um, so I think we should probably be focusing on, you know, like things like just checking, like, does this work with the latest Python? Like, or are there any like, like bug fixes, right? If we can get like all like more of the Python packages just to have their basic bugs fixed, like things that have like kind of regression bugs, like, you know, something doesn't work with the latest Mac M1, right? There's a lot of Mac M1 or, you know, ARM architecture issues that have popped up in the last few years. So mm. um, I think that would be the thing to, you know, to focus on in terms of making our Python package ecosystem more robust is just trying to fix bugs and check compatibility and feel confident. Uh, just this last week, a colleague of mine was looking at something we're trying to do some other little tool. And he's like, didn't you write something for that? And I'm like, yeah, it's over here. And I, and I heard myself in my head thinking, if you have any issues, let me know. And out of my mouth said, if you have any issues, well, then fix them. Anyway. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> we, should, we should change to just that. If you have any issues, fix them and send a PR that has full tests as well. Thank you. Well, one of the things, so I was like looking into, I brought up PyTest Repeat and it's a it's a package that I'm like, why hasn't it yet been updated? And a lot, there's so there's things like Alchemy, SQL Alchemy. There's an, we kind of think that the team's probably not as big as we think it is. I, I think it's like, oh, there's tons of people using it. So it's, they're, they're good on support, but they might not be. But then there's other smaller things like just a little plugin, like a PyTest plugin or something that somebody wrote because it was helpful to them. But if, if, if they're not bothered by it being out of date, it probably won't get updated. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. There was one thing that you mentioned I wanted to follow up on. And you said that you were possibly going to learn Go. Was that a joke or are you thinking <laughs> about Go? Because I thought all uh, the Python devs are learning Rust these days. So, Oh, yeah. I, so, I mean, I just mentioned Go. I, I actually learned Go. I actually organized the first Go workshop ever back in Google Australia because Go, uh, you know, it came out 
from from Google when I was at Google. So, and I was at Google Sydney, which is where uh, Rob Pike and uh, Nigel Tao and, and other members of the Go team were. And so Go was like being created while I was there. And I actually helped hire their first developer advocate. It was actually my friend, uh, Andrew. So, and he was he was amazing at it. Uh, and, and we did like the first Go workshop. So I, I technically have done Go for quite a bit. And at Khan Academy, we did, uh, I did work on porting the Khan Academy Python code to Go. Okay. Uh, so I have used Go a little bit. Uh, but it's I've used it so little that I keep on forgetting it. And um, I'm also just slightly burned by the amount of structs that we used at Academy. I called it structception. We just it was just so many structs inside structs. It was just too many structs. But <laughs> if you haven't done go yet, don't let me uh, you know paint it. I, I think the team behind it is is brilliant because I, I worked with them and uh, you know, Rob Pike and Nigel and um, Brad and and yeah, they're the, so I, I think it's it's a it's a great language, uh, and now I understand a lot more about concurrency. I actually keep thinking about Rob's talk. So Rob gave a talk in at an in person conference in San Francisco. Uh, it was like a Heroku conf, I think, okay. and it was about con- concurrency is not parallelism. I think that was the name of the talk. And at the time, uh, I didn't really understand the talk uh, but i loved it because rob's uh wife is an illustrator and she is responsible for the amazing gopher graphics if you ever seen the gopher yeah. illustrations for gordy the gopher yeah so she illustrated the whole talk and it has these amazing graphics of gophers uh being like doing concurrent things versus parallel things uh, and they're like carting stuff off to a mine so I was just kind of just really amazed by how adorable those gophers were and was just having a hard time wrapping my head around the concurrency versus parallelism. But now I'm increasingly using a lot more uh, async weight uh, in in Python yeah. code and realizing the need for it and actually trying to like, you know, document it and um, and and share that more. And so I actually keep thinking about about that talk. Um, so I actually want to go back and even I think I've watched it a couple times, but now I want to watch it again because now I think uh, it's it's really going to sink in. So you know, even if I'm not using Go, uh, you know, actively, the uh, concepts from it are still really helpful. Oh, cool, neat! I'll have to go check check it out. Um, yeah. I do like a good talk, especially one with good animation. So <laughs> yeah. nice. Well, thanks so much for um, for chatting with me today it was nice yeah it was really fun anytime thanks for listening to python people show notes are at pythonpeople.fm please subscribe to the show you can also follow the show on mastodon follow at python people or at brian ockin both on fostodon.org this episode is brought to you by the complete pytest course pytest is powerful and easy to get started you owe it to yourself and your team to write clean, easy-to-read tests to save you time now and during maintenance. The Complete PyTest course will get you started with good habits and teach you some cool tricks when you need them later on. Even if you already use PyTest, why not level up? With a 30-day refund policy, you've got nothing to lose. Check it out at courses.pythontest.com. Thank you, Patreon supporters. You rock. Links to the course and Patreon sign-up are in the show notes. If you'd like to be on the show or know someone you'd like me to interview, reach out to me on Mastodon. I'm at Brian Aachen at Fostodon.org. That's all for now. Thanks.